when was the last time you had a conversation about racism? Perhaps like so many, these conversations are triggered within your circles by high profile cases of injustice in the media. Perhaps like so many, these conversations are triggered within your circles by your own personal experiences on the receiving end of overt or covert prejudice. Perhaps, like so many, you've never had a conversation within your circles about racism. What about in work, in your business, with your team, perhaps even with your most important customers? Today's episode is a conversation about race in key account management. And where CAM is all about effectiveness, I really wanted to explore this important subject that can consciously or unconsciously impair our ability to maximise the success and growth of our most important clients. With diversity, equity, inclusion and anti-racism high on the agenda in the business world, I think it's so important that we have these conversations. And my wish is that by listening today, it sparks a conversation in your business with your team and that the learning, the growth and the empathy continues. I'm joined in this episode today by the wonderful Sharon Amesu, a multi-award winning professional speaker who started her career in law as a criminal barrister for 16 years. Sharon now runs a consultancy that supports organisations with leadership development and diversity and inclusion programmes. When we spoke, we talked about our own experiences of race in the workplace, including the privilege that I acknowledge as a white male in business. We'll explore how bias may show up in the engagements with customers and business partners. And we discuss the role of an ally and how getting comfortable with the uncomfortable conversations can create truly empathetic relationships. Welcome to CamCast. I'm your host, David Ventura, a key account management consultant at camguru.com. In this podcast, we explore the strategies, systems, and skills you need for effective key account management. We talk to expert guests and business leaders, sharing the tips, tactics, and techniques for looking after your most important customers. This is Key Account Management Made Easy. So one of the questions that I've been asking myself lately is, does the color of your skin affect the way that you manage your most important customers? Now, the privilege that I hold as a white male in business is to say, no, don't be daft. Definitely not. I don't see color or any other sort of defensive statement that could effectively shut down the conversation. And the thing is that empathy starts by being in the conversation, not by shutting it down. So today on CamCast, I wanted to have a conversation about race and how it shows up in our account management and sales activity. I'm delighted to be joined today by leadership and inclusion strategist, Sharon Amesu. Sharon, thank you so much for joining us today on CamCast. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So Sharon, one thing that that listeners won't necessarily know about you is that you've spent 16 years in the courtroom as a criminal barrister. So I thought in that vein, perhaps we could ask you to start by giving us your opening statement. Okay, so thank you again, David, for the warm welcome. And as you said, uh, my background is law. I was a criminal barrister for 16 years. I entered the legal profession because I was very much passionate about people, equality, equity and justice. And I spent my time in the court in the the north of England, principally representing people who who were who were marginalised and disaffected and, and underrepresented within the criminal justice system. I then became really interested in the intersection between leadership and diversity and started my organisation, which was 2014 now, working with organisations and senior leaders to support them with their leadership and diversity and inclusion initiatives. And throughout the theme is always passion for people and how we can make our workplaces and our societies better for everyone. And that's really, I guess, what it's all about. How can we make workplaces and societies better for everyone, knowing that if we do, we then have that downstream result of growth. We have the downstream result of profit. We have the downstream result of, you know, happy people creates happy customers, creates happy shareholders. And, you know, we were speaking just before hitting record today about the the red thread, if you like, that links this topic to account management. And 
you know, this is definitely one of my passion areas and I'm keen to bring my passion areas into the mix with this podcast. And yet there's always been a question in my mind, how do we link it? How do we get those two things to join together? And I think we hit the nail on the head just before hitting record today when we talked about the word effectiveness. And actually to be an effective business partner, we have to confront anything that could impair our effectiveness in key client relationships. So I think that's what it's all about. It's about relationships between people um, and looking at where we can where we can manage that effectiveness. So um, it, this is definitely something that's high on the agenda for many businesses these days. Tell me about your experience with that. So you're working with clients all over the country on this topic. Uh, tell me about your experience on on the on the, the topic on the agenda if you like and how yeah. you're seeing it show up. It's really interesting that you should you should start off, David, by saying where is the common thread or where is the red thread that links the two? And the question that you pose is not uncommon. It's a, it's a question that I hear leaders posing throughout their organizations. And there are some who, who don't see the thread at all. And there are those who see it as very vivid and explicit. But the reality of the matter is it is very much connected. There is no distinction, there is no separation, there is no segregation between racial inclusion and our effectiveness in our organizations, in our sales teams, in any other teams that we have, whether it be marketing or otherwise. The extent to which we understand the context that we're sitting in, the communities that we're sitting in, and we enable our teams and our our staff and our employees to better engage with those people, the more effective and impactful we will be. And sadly, however, what I still come across in in the organization that I work with is that whilst on the face of it, there is a, there is a sort of a conceptual understanding, a cognitive awareness then of the reality of this connection. It doesn't then filter into the heart of things. And how do we know that it doesn't? Well, there's no real investment in it. There's no prioritization of it. There's a lot of lip service. There's a, there's a lot of window dressing, but at the heart of it, where it comes to real intentionality, we're not seeing that. But of course, it is, it, it, it's foolhardy. It's foolhardy to ignore how significant it is for organizations now more than ever in the wake of all of the movements that we're aware of following George Floyd's death, the Black Lives Matter movement and the, the sort of the renaissance of that and understanding the expectations that there are now increasingly of key stakeholders. It's foolhardy to not see the direct nexus connection, interlinking and impact interconnectivity between the two. Just there's a couple of things that you said there. I think um, renaissance being one of the word, almost a resurgence uh, of a movement. And, you know, to some, they might feel like it's a new movement. And to many of us, we're saying, no, 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 the movement's always been there. And actually, you know, life events and big media events shine a light back on that movement again and, you know, and get us talking about it. And and talking about it is often very uncomfortable. And perhaps that's one of the reasons it doesn't happen enough intentionally in business, because we're predisposed, I guess, as human beings to navigate towards things that are comfortable and away from things that are uncomfortable. So, you know, let's not have that uncomfortable conversation when we're just trying to make sales and run a business here. And yet, you know, being intentional links back to that being effective. I also think there is a difference, a big difference, perhaps, in the way that we might see over racism and some of the stuff that you are quote unquote appalled by horrified by you know and we've seen some of this in recent weeks in the media following the aftermath of the uh, Euro 2020 final in the football and you know th- those we would say it's overt racism we're seeing it and we're feeling it viscerally feeling it as we're as we're experiencing this in in the media and then of course on the flip side you've got that sort of subtle covert systemic, all of that level of racism. 
the and and of course unconscious bias as well which you know is just in people's minds that isn't them intentionally being a certain way but is leading to them interacting with other races in a way that isn't productive isn't helpful and is and is unkind so tell me about i suppose the difference in 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 your work between looking at dealing with the systemic and subtle nuances of racial inequality and, of course, the overt anti-racism movement, I guess, because the, yeah. there, there is a difference and, and there needs to be a balance between the two, right? Yeah, so it's really interesting. There is a difference. And on the face of it, actually, one would assume that in relation to the overt, explicit, horrific, egregious racism that the the response to that and the ability to recognize and deal with it is much more clear that there's a straight line of sight to that and organizations whether it takes place internally or you know a member of staff undertakes such behavior externally but they're still a member of staff one would assume that you would just be able to deal with that very simply a recent case with the euros reveals that actually that that's not necessarily the case and so that dichotomy that distinct dichotomy between how one responds to and treats overt racism compared with the more subtle racism it is not as one would assume it to be but let's just take it that it is and one would say one of the things that that is and very distinct about the two would be just how visible and recognizable it is that you know it you see it it's almost like i often relate the see it say it sorted um, that we often hear in the london underground so it's so clear it's uh, completely out in the open uh, and is uh, explicit and so you see it for what it is and therefore it makes it more easy in commerce to call it out, to kick it out, to speak out against it, to legislate against it, etc., to have policies in relation to it. It's much more easy to have a formal response and to galvanize support against your explicit racism. The more insidious and the more challenging racism are those that show up as what um, some describe as microaggressions, other others call micro incivilities. And these are the almost imperceptible pieces here, David. It, it's the overlooking, it's not making eye contact with someone when you're having a conversation with them. It's making a comment when someone um, changes their their hairstyle. It's a hint at something. It's almost like a whisper that feels sometimes indiscernible, but to the recipient of that, you sense something's not quite right. You can't quite put your finger on it, but you just know something about that behavior, that attitude, that way of being around you just doesn't sit quite right with you. And it's not the way that others of your peers are treated. Those are the more difficult to challenge because they're not overt. And sometimes you can you can be in almost a state of paranoia about whether or not you're being oversensitive and you're being overly critical and overly analytical and perceiving something that's not there, whereas actually there is there is a something about it. And it's those that are the most challenging in the workplace. It's those uh, missed job opportunities where the description that's given about why you've not been promoted don't quite fit, but you can't, You uh, sort of attaching and attributing racism to it seems too much of a, a strong, fierce attack on the decision maker, but you just know something doesn't sit quite right. Those are the more challenging and the more pervasive and the more more present, actually. Camcast, key account management made easy. You talk about not being able to necessarily articulate it in the right way, and that's because sometimes the experience of those microaggressions it is a feeling. It's not. There's no word that can really sort of, I suppose, articulate. There's no word that can articulate the actual experience so that another might fully understand it. And and experience can be very feeling feeling driven. We've used some words there like microaggressions that, that might be new to, to some of our listeners. And, you know, I've been doing a lot of reading on, on this over the last 
year, year and a half. And I suppose just to add some some context for listeners. So my wife is black of uh, St. Lucian and Jamaican heritage, two very lovely mixed race children. For me, I've been on a personal learning journey around all of this stuff over the last year and a half, as I, as a, as a parent to mixed race children, want to be more informed and want to address some of my privilege. And I, and I say the word privilege again, I mentioned it earlier on, and privilege sounds sometimes like a judgment. It's something you've intentionally decided to grab off the shelf and take as yours, you know, and actually the privilege is just this. It's that when I walk into a boardroom with a group of clients or prospective clients or delegates on a training course, I don't have to worry about how they might perceive me because I fit the norm, quote unquote, of what a privileged business person looks like. Open any sort of book off the shelf of this is what people look like in business and a lot of them will look like me. And that is a privilege. It's a privilege to not have to worry about that. And I pause because I don't know where to go next. It just, I, it, I sit with that and I just think, how can we remove that? How can we remove that? Not, not remove the privilege, give everyone the privilege of feeling comfortable. Yeah. A, a lot of people struggle with that uh, term privilege for the very reasons that you described, David. It's almost as though, for example, if you've had a working class background and you have had to struggle through your various challenges and mountains and obstacles to get to where you are in your career or, or whatever it might be, then to, for someone to describe you as privileged seems that uh, completely at, at, at odds with your experience. But as you've described, it's very much, I often use synonymous with that, the word advantage. What does who you are and where you come from, how does that advantage you or provide an advantage for you in various mm. contexts? Mm. What does me being able-bodied and able to climb a set of stairs in a building, what advantage does that give to me compared with someone who enters the building and has a wheelchair? What immediate advantage do I have? How much quicker can I get to the place of destination simply because of the attributes that I have, I, I've been born with as opposed to anything that I have, uh, have earned? Or, or what disadvantage does it cause to that person? Not because of anything they have done, but just because of who they are and what they have or don't have through no fault of their own. It's very much about advantage. And the way in which then we look at this field, essentially, if we look at the marketplace, if we look at that room that you've talked about entering, how is it that we ensure that everyone in the room, because what we're talking about is opportunity. How do we ensure that whoever enters into that room is treated with the same level of respect and granted the same opportunity as, as everyone else? How is it that how do we ensure that when Sharon walks into the room, she has the same level of opportunity as David would? And there are challenges with that because in that room already, we already have in our minds um, who is a leader, who is a successful business person, who are the outliers. We have those perceptions in our mind because very much of the way that we have been socialised. That, that's it. And we're all, we've all been socialized. No one is immune to be impacted by the images that are around us, by the media that's around us, by our friends and by our family. We are all impacted. And so the only way that we're able to change something is to become aware of it. One cannot change what one is not aware of. Mm -hmm. So it's the extent to which everyone who is a decision maker and a key player in that environment becomes aware and conscientizes themselves around what is impacting or what might impact the way in which I engage with this person who doesn't look like me, who doesn't sound like me, who may not have my background. How do I ensure that those biases that impact my decision making, which we all have, that they do not impair 
the effectiveness and the quality of my the decision that I may make about this other person? How do I ensure that biases such as affinity bias, namely connecting with people who look, sound like me, have the same background as me, that I don't allow that to cause some kind of barrier in my mind about the eligibility and the suitability of this person. And the only way that we do that is through consciously and intentionally and perpetually being aware and asking ourselves the question, how am I making this this decision? What judgments am I making? What biases may be at play? And in being aware, it's also then accepting what you see or what you hear or what you feel as being the truth. Yeah. Rather than rather than getting on the defensive and wanting to challenge it. And a defensive mechanism will always be at the forefront here. It, you know, our defences kick in at all sorts of times and they kick in the most when something becomes uncomfortable. And if, and if you, you raise your awareness by asking that question and the answer to that question is uncomfortable, it's not letting your defences kick in to shut it down, but actually just accepting, well, that's the truth. OK, that, that's what it is. What can we do? What can we say? What can we, how can we behave differently to change that going forward? We talk about the sort of the biases that might show up and that, that walking into a meeting room and looking at who's sat around the table. It's still very common and very relatable for people to imagine if, if, if listeners shut their eyes now and imagined a boardroom table with a group of people sat around it, it would be no surprises if we took a snapshot of everyone's minds and saw a group of men not women, a group of white men and of perhaps a certain age that would indicate they'd been on a career journey long enough that they could get to that boardroom table. So that's one of the perceptions that would be completely relatable to any listener, even those thinking, well, I don't know if I have racial unconscious bias. I think it's just, you know, this is the way I see the world. And you know, the language like, and I said this before, I don't see colour. You know, that wouldn't be uncommon to just imagine, oh, well, that, yeah, that's what the boardroom table looks like. So it's not, you don't have to search far to find the inequality on a gender basis. So, you know, why not become more aware and accept that you would also find that inequality on a racial basis as well? You're absolutely right. It's that feeling the defensiveness, it seems to me, comes about because no one wants to be regarded as having bad intent or having flawed character. No one wants to be seen as the bad guy who makes decisions based on anything but pure objectivity and merit. No one wants to be that person. And if there's anything that confronts that belief about ourselves, then the lure is to reject it and disown it. Whereas actually, if we are able, as you say, to look at it and see it and own it, and then in owning it, say, what do I do about it now? So there's no judgment. It's not about judgment and it's not about blame because we're very much in a, in a society which points the finger of blame and causes shame. And where there is shame, then we hide. But if we're able to say, okay, this is this is what's been going on for me. So I am, for example, I am a child of the 70s and 80s in the UK. And I grew up during a time where there was um, serious hostility between law enforcement and the black community. I grew up during the 1980s rights across the country. And therefore, I grew up with a real cynicism of law enforcement and skepticism and wariness because of the experience that I have. And to be honest with you now, David, I still see it in the black community. I can see the wariness. I can see the lack of trust. Why? Because of the experiences that people have. And so being aware of why they exist, why is there that thing within us? Why do I have that wariness? Why would I have the mistrust? Being aware of that, knowing, of course, that there are many brilliant police officers who are doing an amazing work every single day and that the majority are, are not racist and the majority are, do not have bias towards a certain demographic, but there are those who do. Understanding that we trust is as a result of experience in the same way that mistrust is. So that understanding that and not judging 
where that has come from, but seeing it for what it is and ensuring that it doesn't cause me to then make decisions which are which are not quality decisions, which are ill-founded, which are not substantiated by experience. It's so important. It's not a judgment on me. It's just how I've been socialized in my familial and community experiences. So too then with decision makers in the boardroom mm. and decision making in our organizations and our sales teams, etc. Understanding what has been your race conversation growing up. What, what were your family's perspectives on race? To what extent do you still hold those perspectives, even though they may not be front and center? Mm. The more you're aware of that, the more we're aware of what grandma has said and what dad has said, and what what um, uncles have said when they're watching stuff on TV, the more we're aware of the 70s programs that we grew up with and the language that we heard and how, in fact, we're, we're, we're not immune to that. We don't have a, a Teflon identity. Actually, it forms very much a part of who we are. The more we're aware of that, no judgment, it's just it is what it is. We then are able to address it so that it no longer impacts our effectiveness as leaders. And you're absolutely right about having those conversations with our peers, with our colleagues about their experiences growing up, their conversations, you know. Did you grow up in a in a household that that happily sat around the dining room table watching Love Thy Neighbor and those other shows that that nowadays you would just say, "Wow." Wow, we we let that stuff be on TV, and but it, and not you know saying, well, I can't believe you watched that back then, but saying because you watched that back then, let's just think about how that now shows up later down sure. the line. Um, sure. and and I come back to this, you know, how do we how do we get to a position where the feeling the feeling that we want to create is a feeling of comfort for everyone. And to create a feeling of comfort, we need to intentionally do stuff that makes people feel comfortable in the same way that, you know, if people came to your house, you you do things intentionally to make people feel comfortable. And part of being an ally in the business world is the stuff that you do to make people feel comfortable. And one of the things I think that makes people feel uncomfortable in whatever walk of life and whatever race you are is seeing and experiencing that you are not alone. So, and and I, I come back to this even and what you know and and uh, I've still got work to do on this in my own content and my own collateral and and actually I think there is a a business model out there for someone to create much more diverse stock imagery and video footage and all of that kind of stuff. But you know I remember when I I first started working with my marketing strategist and my brand strategist about a year and a half ago. I said to her, if we're putting together any collateral, I want to make sure that all the imagery we use is diverse. And my reasoning for that, and my intentional reasoning for that, is to try and create a, a feeling of comfort for anyone watching, listening, viewing. You know, it's, it's. I can see in that what I see in me, and that, and that's where the comfort comes from. And that's just one of the things I guess that that we can do to be an ally. Uh, talk about being an ally for me. T- tell me what that for those that are perhaps listening to that word and thinking, what does that really mean? And in in this context. What is t- what is it to be an ally and what can yeah. an ally do? The word ally is um, a word which some believe has just come into common parlance. And um, it, it, to a certain degree, it has, but it's always been around. If we just think about, for example, the world wars, and we have this idea, don't we, of um, certainly in the UK, the Second World War, the Americans being our allies. What were they? They were those who came alongside us to support us in what we were seeking to do. They leveraged their resources to ensure that we had a fair chance. They enabled, they sponsored, they opened doors, they created opportunities. They were a voice for us. That's what allyship is. It's very much about, in the workplace, leveraging your socio-political capital to benefit those who are underrepresented. It's about solidarity. It's about sponsorship. And I think for me, one of the most powerful ways, David, that people can be effective allies, for me, I'll just see this personally, is when I'm not in the room. So it's it's relatively easier to speak up 
when I'm in the room and to come alongside me and to be an advocate. It's relatively easier, not always easy, but it's relatively easier, right? Mm. But it's when I'm not in the room. And I hear this oftentimes with many of my um, white friends Mm -hmm. and colleagues. And when I'm not in the room, then sometimes there can be conversations that come about which if I was in the room, I would deem very, very inappropriate and I would be very uncomfortable to be in the midst of. It's the allies who are willing when I'm absent to speak up and say, that's not okay. That language is not appropriate. That, that representation yeah. is is just not seeming whatsoever. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's in those spaces allyship really comes into its own. Let me just dive in there because so I'm I'm really relating to this and I'm really relating to it because I've been there so many times when I'm working with clients or sitting in a room with peers where the room itself is not diverse. There are no people of colour sat around the table and something is said, something happens, a bit of behaviour, whatever it might be, something happens and I sit there or stand there and I think, Mm, that's not right. Mm. And then the privilege kicks in because my privilege in that moment is that Mm. I can quietly stay silent and not create an uncomfortable conversation, not have an argument with a client perhaps that could potentially lead to me losing the business, to not challenge a peer who I need that level of influence with to be able to progress my agenda or whatever it might be. And, you know, I put myself in the shoes of an account manager now, maybe it is, yeah, it's, it's a client says something and, and, and they want to challenge it through, from a point of, of humanity. And, and yet they're being told by their boss, make sure you close that deal when you go to, the, to their office today. And and I and I've been there in the past where where I st- and the, the discomfort bubbles and I, I'm I'm reaching for if you could see this I'm reaching for my chest because it bubbles it bubbles up into my chest and into my neck and I want to say something and sometimes I do and it's uncomfortable and it might just be like you've just suggested there well that's not right that's not that's not cool let's just rewind a bit. And sometimes it comes from a point of, uh, excuse me, <laughs> what did you just say? And uh, now I think, oh, David, no, wait, you, now you're being confrontational. And, and uh, so it, I guess the question I'm leading to is, you know, from what you've seen of other allies and what you've, what you've learned about yourself and, and the way that you see this, is there a best way to, to, to confront that, to be the, the ally, to, to, to call it out? without and maybe maybe i was about to say without the risk but maybe it's just going there is a risk and that's okay yeah i i want the business but i don't need the business on those terms such a great question so the scenarios that you describe david are of course scenarios that you will come across because of the uh, supposed ease and comfort that that white counterparts will have around you, not knowing your own background and your own personal relationships. But there are also situations that I have been in where uh, overt things have been said, inappropriate, misaligned stuff has been said. And so I can speak from personal experience, both in relation to racist, inappropriate, sexist comments made in my presence, or, or, or about that would that, that impact me personally, or among my own peers, people from my own community who also have said something that's inappropriate. And so I, in relation to each of those situations and scenarios, really connect myself with my own values, David. I connect myself with my values and really think about what matters in this moment. I always fundamentally know that I have to choose my battles because to fight every battle is exhausting. Yeah. And, and it's not my job to fight every single battle because I'll be wearisome, I'll be wearying, and also 
Um, it, it's just an insuperable battle to be fighting every single time. You, you can't, you can't do it. What I do is really think about well, what what matters most in this moment? Why do I need to speak up in this moment? And who? What's the lesson that needs to be learned here? Am I going to be sharing this? this insight, this awareness or raising this awareness with someone who will actually take on board what I've got to say or not? Is there a wider lesson to be taught here, even beyond that person or not? I really, and it's oftentimes quick thinking and I don't always get it right, all right? There are times where I'll leave a room and I've not said something and I kick myself because I should have said something. Or um, I'll leave a room and I said something but I didn't say it quite right and I was a little bit blunt. So it doesn't always come out right or at all. But I know that fundamentally it's important for me to be true to who I am, to be aligned to my values, to understand that there is a place for correction. There is a place for calling stuff out. Mm. Um, And it's important that I play my part in doing so. It's also important to acknowledge one, as you mentioned, that there will be risk in that. There's reputational risk. There's relationship risk. Um, there's business risk. There are risks in that. In in any situation where it's high stakes, it's by extension, there will be risk. But I can speak from a personal experience uh, of something that happened very recently for me, where I was involved in um, a program and one of the lecturers on this program was sharing their insights of working with a particular demographic. Now, this demographic were predominantly, were were Black. I was the only Black person in this group amidst my peers. And the way in which this person spoke about this demographic was incredibly condescending and patronising. And I felt, you know, that red mist descending Mm -hmm. and and literally this churning in my chest and churning in my stomach. And for the... 20 minutes or so that I heard this person speaking, I wrestled with whether or not I to speak up because, of course, one does not want to disrupt the flow of things that come in. They were actually a visiting speaker to this particular program. They weren't the main uh, speaker or leader of the program. Mm-hmm. Um, what they were sharing otherwise in the main was useful, but, but the, the couching of it was completely inappropriate. Um, I was also among peers who were uh, professionals. They were PhD doctors and so on and so I had a real quandary, a real dilemma about whether or not to speak up and say, the way in which you have gone about this, the context in which you've placed uh, this information has been uh, inappropriate and I felt uncomfortable. Mm. And after wrestling with that, it was just a, a couple of months ago, after wrestling with that, David, I decided that I needed to speak. It was one of the most uncomfortable conversations I'd ever had because talk about raising your head above the parapet, talk about discomfort. I felt shaking, knees, hands, feet. I felt shaking everywhere. But I knew that in that moment, it was a teaching opportunity. And so I shared my heart and the person was grateful and my peers were grateful. And in fact, several of my peers after that point came to me and said privately, I'm so glad that you shared that because it gave me courage to speak up about other situations that I've encountered inappropriate behavior or attitudes. And so sometimes in a moment, we are, we are not just doing something for ourselves. We are not just about correcting that person. We're doing something that has an impact, which far outweighs the immediacy of that particular situation. Yeah. Uh, but fundamentally, I would say, yes, choose your battles. You can't fight every battle, but be aligned and true to who you are. Sometimes, David, it's a simple matter of walking away. Mm. And just saying, all right, if I don't have the courage in this moment or the strength to contend with this, I will make my 
my views known by my absence from the conversation. And, and it is about being courageous because, you know, wh- how many times have we been in training courses where whoever's facilitating will say something like, you know, remember, guys, there's no such thing as a stupid question. If you're thinking something, then you can pretty much guarantee that someone else is as well. Well, actually, what you've just described there is that you felt something viscerally, that red mist came about, and you getting the courage to speak about it, it suddenly became very, uh, you, you, so you were suddenly very aware that everyone else was feeling uncomfortable too around that and you gave them the courage and yet I also come back to one of the things that you just said a moment ago about it being exhausting and so therefore I think well as an ally let me lighten the load let me let me let me take part of my responsibility is to make it feel less exhausting for you to have to be the person that speaks up you know one of the things that 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 you know and we we sort of say this quite lightheartedly in our house when we see sort of you know high profile cases in the media of companies that get it wrong right you know when you know someone in marketing decides to do something and it's just not right i'm trying to think of a of a, a recent H&M. example h&m H&M. there we go it was the it was the young black boy wearing the uh, the the jumper with the monkey slogan on right and you know, uh, my wife and I will uh, will sort of jokingly say this in 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 our house. So we will say, "Where was where was the black guy in that conversation? Where 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 were they when they were when these group of white men were having this conversation about what was right to do?" And and we joke about it, but actually, even if there was somebody there who should be representing, it's not their job alone to be in this conversation it would be exhausting to be that guy in the mix whose job it is to police the inappropriateness of everything else that's going on it would be exhausting it's on all of us to be in that conversation and to have those uncomfortable and uncomfortable chats and be courageous too and I, I take your point about picking your battles you don't want to fight um every fight there is going you want to choose your moments and actually make a difference because that's the intent of being in a battle is to is to to, to make a difference but not not just leaving it to to to, to the minority to fight their own battle but to to, to be in that as well um, absolutely so I mean, I, and I, I can think of a, a dozen different examples where where I've been in, in that situation and wonder what to say. And but I can also think of a dozen different examples of where I've perhaps heard, perhaps heard things myself that I didn't know were offensive or could be experienced as offensive. And it wasn't until again being comfortable comfortable enough to be in the conversation with another about it and about their experience that I can say now, actually, yeah, wow. And there are some things, in you know, I grew up in a little village in Hertfordshire, right? So not a particularly diverse community where I grew up. So there will have been things that people would have said growing up that I just took as the norm. And, and you know, I'll share with you one of those things now, and this will be absolutely no surprise to you that back in the 80s, it was quote unquote normal to deem uh, or to, to, uh, to call a mixed race person half caste. Mm. Right, mm. that that was quite normal mm. in those times. And as a child in the eighties, hey, I didn't know that it was offensive. I had absolutely no idea. I mean, for me to know that it was offensive, I either needed needed to be in a more diverse community for someone to say I'm offended by that, and I wasn't yeah. in that environment, or I needed to know the Latin origin of the word cast. You know, the Latin word castus meaning pure. And it's Spanish and Portuguese derivative, meaning casta, meaning race. And I would need to know all that. And as a you know, a small child, <laughs> it was no way. And actually, if I looked at my parents and the other adults around, I don't even think they knew the origination. Sure. So it wasn't until I was in my, I don't know, mid-20s when the term was used around my, my now wife and she was really offended by it. And we had a really big conversation about it and it was a learning point for me. And, and of course, you know, fast forward to now, I have two mixed race children and the idea that they could be called that would, would, would be massively offensive to me. And, and and we don't hear it as much uh, anymore. And that's because education has progressed and yet we still hear it. Yeah. It's interesting. One of the things that I often remark on with leaders is for them to pay attention to the evolution of language. Mm. 
So let's let's use another example. During the 1970s and 80s, the word coloured was used extensively. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I recall and certainly a colleague of mine relayed that uh, she she was challenged by using the word black. And she was challenged by use in recent times because at university they were actively discouraged from using the word black because it was seen as diminutive. And so they were encouraged to use the word coloured because that was seen as inclusive. Mm. And now we've got a a complete U-turn, as it were, on on that that phraseology and that descriptor, whereas coloured is completely inappropriate but black is very much claimed and owned by a certain demographic. Yeah. And what I say is to all leaders, because I often am, am asked essentially to almost devise a glossary of terms. It's not possible to do so because words, language evolves. The way in which to understand what will and won't cause offence is to ask the question ask whether or not you like to be called a member of the BAME community or not. And Mm. if you don't, what would you prefer to be called? It's so important to, to ask the question, how would you like to be described and use the term that's acceptable to the individual because words and language evolve. And I completely concur with you. There are so many people because not not through any deliberate malicious intent necessarily on their part. Now there are those words which are really obvious, all right? Using using the N-word, we know that's offensive, unequivocally uh, unequivocally so, all right. So it, that's that's not a question. That's that's understood as being offensive. However, there are other words such as the one that you've used. And I know that there's a generation before me that still aren't very much aware of that word, that description, uh, half caste not being acceptable. So it's an education piece where it's used, saying actually that's not the way that we describe people mm. anymore. And this is the language, whether it be mixed race or mixed heritage or, or mixed parentage, etc. Whatever that might be, understanding the evolution of language is what will really help. And that comes through asking the question. Yeah. And I always say we can't blame the ignorant for being ignorant. And yeah. and when I say that word ignorant, it sounds judgmental and it sounds like a derogatory term in its own right. And it's not. Ignorance simply means that you don't know what you don't know, right? And And therefore, if we can't blame the ignorant for being ignorant, we're all ignorant to some level or degree. It's just in us. There are things that we don't know. And yet, Within our, I suppose, within our own individual privileges for each and every one of us that walk on this earth, we have the privilege to be curious. We have the privilege to be more aware. We have the privilege to question, to be in the conversation, to be truly empathetic. And truly empathetic is not just saying, I understand. Truly empathetic is saying, let me feel what you feel for a moment. Let me really, truly understand what you're saying. Let me pause. Let yeah. me hear it. Let me listen. And let me think about the way that I want to intentionally be going forward. And, you know, maybe I, I feel like we could talk for hours on this topic. And, you know, we, we, we started talking about the red thread and finding that thread between this very big conversation, this courageous conversation about race and how it links to account management and sales yeah. and business and yet within account management sales and business it's it's all about people absolutely you, you hit the nail on the head it's all about people it's all, all about engagement with people and management of people mm. it, it's all about how we interact valuing others that's what it's all about at its core and so uh, understanding and engaging conversations around racial bias is understanding how do we engage with people who don't look like us? How do we form judgments about people who don't look like us? And what impact might those judgments have on our sales, on our effectiveness, on our growth? How might might those judgments impair those? That's Mm. really what it's all about. Sharon, I think one of the things I want to finish on today is um, posing a question 
for our listeners. It's time for the Camcast Killer Question. From our position of curiosity, I guess, and from our from our invitation to them to explore this topic, perhaps well, you might you know from the show that we have our segment, uh, which is the Killer Question. Perhaps I could ask you to share your Killer Question for our listeners. You know, something that can get them thinking about this big topic that will help them in the way that they bridge the gap between race and sales and account management and business. Uh, Sharon, what's your killer question for the Camcast listeners? So my question is, how much better would your account management be if you were intentionally to work on the biases that might impact your decision making? And if the answer is loads better, Sharon. (laughs) How will you go about doing that? Absolutely. And, you know, I often say to listeners, if there's been things that have been of interest in our conversation today, listen to them again and say, yes, it was interesting. What's the action? And, you know, for me, this is one of those episodes I will listen back to and I will ask myself, what's the action that I want to take from this? I've enjoyed listening to the conversation. I've enjoyed having the conversation with you today, Sharon. And I see that very much as a, as a to use the word again, it's a privilege to, to, to talk to you today. And I want, to, I want to go back and I want to think about intentional action off the back of this. Like I say, an absolute pleasure. Um, Sharon, if people want to learn more about your work, about what you do, I know you have your TED Talk, which you've done recently, which is fabulous. Tell, tell people how they can find out more about you and get in touch. Yes, please. If you want to find out more about my work, you can visit my website, which is www.sharonmsu.co.uk. I'm also on LinkedIn with my name, Sharon Msu. Awesome. Sharon, thank you so much for being a guest today on Camcast. Pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, David. Camcast, key account management made easy. So how are you feeling after listening to that conversation? What are your reflections? How are you going to continue the conversation and who are you having the conversation with? I wonder what your experiences have been, whether on the receiving end of prejudice or from a place of privilege. Has race or racism ever impaired your effectiveness with your key accounts? Understanding the context and the communities that we are sitting in day to day, week to week, month to month is key to empowering our teams to maximise relationships. What is your organisational response against racism? What awareness do you have of your own biases and how can you raise that awareness when you're interacting with others? How much attention do you pay to the evolution of language And are you running the risk of using outdated terminology that could offend your contacts and peers? With understanding being a key driver for key account management relationships, how does this conversation about race help us to understand each other and ourselves better to maximise the relationships with key customers? I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode today and in doing so, taking part in this important conversation. If you have something that you'd like to share or throw into the conversation, please do get in touch. After a summer break, we're now back in the studio recording some great content for upcoming episodes of Camcast. So keep your questions and your suggestions coming in too. Thank you for listening to this episode of Camcast, a podcast brought to you by camguru.com, one of the UK's leading key account management consulting and training organizations. If you like this episode, we'd really appreciate you sharing it with your connections, giving us a review on your chosen podcast app and letting us know what else you'd like to hear in an upcoming episode. You can find the show notes for this episode on the website at camguru.com forward slash podcast.